I have a good picture that I'm going to use, actually. I was uh, on the computer and Sonny was, after getting his hand on volume two. Oh, yeah. He was sitting down and he was laughing and he was flicking through pages. And I said, geez, that'd be a good photo. Yeah, but then by the time I got the camera to take it, he'd started crying. So it's just a picture of, of him, volume two on the ground, and he's screaming, crying. Crying? <laughs> I was going to say, it might be the only person who ever laughed while reading volume two. He's probably, it took a, like maybe 40 seconds to cry. That's probably about average. <laughs> uh, that's great. Welcome, Welcome. from Alpha from Alpha. to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 51st episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 26th of June, 2014, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show is brought to you by the very generous monthly subscribers, Precious J, Derek McH, Ambrose A, Amir H, and Jeffrey S. If you'd like to join this elite group of people, or just to make a once-off donation, why not click on that there donate button on the podcast website. This week, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show the jazz pianist, Marxist autodidact, YouTube star, and the man behind the Capitalism 101 blog, Brendan Cooney. I've recently just finished reading Volume 2 of Marx's Das Kapital, and so I invited Brendan back to the show to talk about what to make of it all. But before we launch into the work of the German Ubermensch, we talk about the conference Brendan has just been attending, all about the piano-playing technique called the Taubman Approach. been studying that stuff for um, over a decade, getting really deep into the Taubman work, and uh, I'm a big proponent of it. I'm actually in the middle of, a, of the long, slow process of getting certified to, to be an official teacher of the approach through the Galansky Institute. You've heard of it before. I've heard of it. Now, I used to be a classical player. Kind of, I used to be an organist, actually. Oh, awesome. It seems really technical, is it? It's really analytical. It's very analytical. I actually think it's extremely dialectical. It's funny, I was reading a book on dialectics the whole week while on the train while I was going down there for this conference. But of course, no one in the Talbot world would be interested at all in that discussion, right? They're all just piano, piano nerds who want to talk about technique. But the sort of whole interrelation of all the parts uh, and the way they, their, their approach, the sort of scientific approach to the interrelation of the different movements is, I think, a very sort of dialectical approach. But obviously, they're not really thinking about the philosophy of science when they're doing this. They're just developing it in very practical terms. So yeah, it's a very analytical and it's a very different experience of learning a piece or practicing than my old way of playing and, and practicing. But it's, it's, it, it's made a world of difference in my playing. And In what way, like, do you think? Well, I came, I came to the technique very injured. I came out of the conser- at a conservatory totally tendonitis horrible could barely play this technique you know i relearned how to play the piano and now i can play without pain but i also can play way better than i used to be able to play like faster or softer and more dynamic yeah harder pieces 
that have more technical details and difficulties in them, I can play more expressively and I feel like I can you know, achieve certain expressive results I hear, whereas before I didn't feel like I was much of a classical player. I was always told by my classical teachers that I played like a jazz musician, but they could never like explain to me how to, you know, they might play for me and I would say, oh, yeah, Brahms does sound nice when you play it. <laughs> you know, they couldn't tell me how to make it sound like Brahms, you know. And then I started over time with album work, I realized that any sort of expressive thing you want to do, any sort of musical thing you're trying to convey, there, is this, there are certain motions that will allow you to do that, certain, a certain choreography of movement that will make that possible. You just have to know what those motions are and how to put them together in the right way. So that, that was a real revelation when I realized that work wasn't going to just get me out of pain, but it was going to change, sort of transform me as a player. I actually wasn't expecting that when I got into it. There's a really a silent, silent epidemic of plane injuries in the music world, and there isn't really a science to address them, or at least there hasn't been in the past. And what was it that, that was causing your problems? There were all sorts of things. They were all interrelated. Low wrists, straight fingers, but then also curling. Because jazz, jazz players tend to have play with flatter fingers than, than classical. Yeah, they often you see that, and uh, you see a lot of low wrists and sort of pumping at the wrists. So sort of basic alignment, things like that. But then also those bad alignment issues throw off or erase the, the coordinations you need to, to execute passages. So all the other sort of movements were missing too. And it, because of my alignments, we're all off. It sounds like an Alexander technique for the piano. It's similar, um, just way more specific and well structured and thought out than the Alexander work. Could you get a job teaching it? Well, there's a growing amount of, of interest in the technique, and there are you know people being trained to be private teachers in the field. There are not a ton of people teaching in like the academy, but there are a few here and there. Um, it's a little bit of a trick getting the work into the academy. It's, it's definitely an uphill battle because it challenges a lot of assumptions about piano technique, and it's frankly it's kind of threatening to the careers of people that are in those departments who claim to be great teachers, but they graduate all these injured students every year. There's a lot of denial and um, I think careerism in the academy that makes it hard to get this sort of stuff in. And that way it's not that unlike uh, trying to do marks in the academy in the sense that there's just a sort of institutional inertia to trying to do that sort of thing in an academic setting. It's all about marks. You know, I, I should probably say this disclaimer if, when I'm being interviewed about Mark, especially something intimidating like Volume 2, that I'm definitely not an expert in anything in my life, especially Mark's. But I'm also, also I'm often mistaken for an expert in Mark's because I have this blog where I'm sort of trying to figure things out in front of a blogosphere, which is sometimes unfortunate when people maybe think that they're going to get from me like some sort of perfect distillation of marks sometimes it's good for me because it it forces me to be more on my toes than i probably would be if i was just you know reading on my own so take anything i would say to anyone listening to this interview if you post this part of the interview take whatever i say with a grain of salt i might be completely full of shit or i might be there might there might be way more to say about some of these subjects than i can get into but on the topic of philosophy you know it, this is the, the hard thing about Marx is like Marx is difficult enough to read, and all the time you're reading Marx, you're sort of 
you're somewhat aware, sometimes very acutely aware that he is drawing on a very wide array of influences. The man read voraciously. You read Capital and there's like hundreds and hundreds of literary, literary references of just you know, the great works of literature, as well as like cheap no- novels of his time. And then you have the fact that he's drawing on the whole history of political economy, including obscure papers with no authors and all sorts of... Uh, and then on top of that, there's this rich philosophic vocabulary that's very Hegelian in some ways. And you know, no matter how much you think you know about Marx, there's always going to be someone who says to you, you know, you really don't understand Marx until you read blah, blah, blah. Whether that's Adam Smith or David Ricardo or Hegel or Feuerbach or uh, Proudhon or Charles Dickens or, you know, there's always going to be someone in this who, some wider uh, philosophical or intellectual context that will help you understand things Marx is doing better. But that being said, I think it really is possible to read Marx on his own and follow his train of thought and understand what he's doing if we allow ourselves to try to follow his thought process. I think that like Marx's method, his philosophical approach to doing science is not something he often comes right out and explains to you, especially not in detail. You get little snippets of things here and there, but you don't get like, you know, a long treatise on this is exactly the way I think science should be. But it's not too hard to get like an intuitive feel for how he's doing science and how he's thinking by just reading Capital and sort of observing his method. That is, as long as you don't go into it with a lot of preconceptions about what you think economics is or what you think philosophy is or what you think political writing should be. Usually, I think that the people sort of bumping up against Marx's um, method often comes not because they don't have enough background in prior philosophy, but because they come to Marx with all these sort of preconceptions about what they think he's trying to say. The method that you talk of, you know, when I talk on the show and I we talk about Marx and that, I presume most people haven't read Capital because it's pretty intimidating. But to me, the method is, it's pretty amazing. You were saying to me before, there are parts of volume two you called The Graveyard, which I, I have come across and labored through. But yeah. there, there, there's, there's an amazing an approach to detail looking at, say, the functions in, say, the capitalist system and looking at it from every angle and repeatedly looking again and again at certain aspects and until it nearly kind of hypnotizes you into understanding it in the way he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting way of saying that. I mean, volume two is, is, is difficult because it's not edited for publication by Marx and it's not, it doesn't have any of the literary style and flair of volume one. And so you're dealing with just sort of pure sort of theoretical ideas that he's worked out, but he hasn't, you know, he didn't have the time before he died to make it literary masterpiece that volume one is. A lot of volume two is really, it comes straight out of volume one. It's like the perfect logical, what do you call it? It's like it's been unzipped, like a zip file that's been unzipped. Yeah, exactly. We have all the detail that was crunched into one. Yeah, it's like everything flows naturally and logically from the presuppositions and the analysis of volume one. But it doesn't seem like you need to have read volume one to read volume two, which is kind of strange. Maybe not. I mean, here's the thing. I think sometimes in some, there are, I think maybe there's a school of thought that 
sort of treats volume two like it's his own thing and not related to volume one. Maybe we should just sort of give a little context so people can, if they're not familiar with the topics covered by the three books, they understand what's going on here, right? In volume one, Marx starts off with, uh, in a very abstract place, looking at the commodity as the universal cell, cellular unit of a capitalist society. And he, through examining the commodity, starts to reveal, uh, one by one, all the essential social relations of a capitalist society. It's a dialectical analysis, so things are sort of unfolding through this basic commodity. He shows that the commodity form necessarily implies money and examines all the different features of money. Then he starts to examine uh, the phenomenon of uh, exchanging money for the sake of getting more money. That leads him to looking for uh, the source of profit. That leads toward an analysis of wage labor and identifying exploitation of workers as a source of profit. And this leads into this, you know, the rest of the book, which is this a long analysis of the class relations of a capitalist society that happen in the workplace between workers and capitalists. Uh, volume two looks at capital from a different perspective. Uh, instead of looking at the struggle between labor and capital and production, volume two is looking at the circulation of, of capital, the circuit of capital, how capital relates to itself through the buying and selling of its internal parts. So how money will, is used to buy means of production, which create commodities, which sell for more money and so on and so on. Right. We have this endless circuit. The capital has to throw money into circulation to buy means of production and labor power. And then at the end of production, it has commodities and has to sell these commodities to other capitalists and to workers in order to make a profit so it can then start again. And Marx isn't really looking at this necessarily from the perspective of the individual firm as much as the system by itself. And he's trying to understand how the system itself reproduces itself from day to day. Marx you know, never takes for granted that capitalism exists or that any social system exists. Marx wants to explain social systems are created by people and they have to be recreated by people every day. And that requires uh, certain things to happen. Certain preconditions have to be continually uh, created. So Marx in volume two is trying to figure out what preconditions are or what, what sort of things are required for capital to continue to, to circulate. But what he abstracts from, what he abstracts from in volume two is pretty much everything that happens in production. Volume one is about production, all the struggles between capital and labor. But volume two, he just sort of abstracts from that and deals just with circulation. For that reason, I think sometimes volume two is attractive to people that aren't really interested in class struggle or value theory, but are just, just want to talk about the circulation of commodities and money. Often, you know, non-Marxists have been drawn to volume two because they are interested in models of the circulation of capital. In fact, the reproduction schemes at the end of capital, in which he maps out a very complicated sort of diagram. Actually, they're not diagram. I wish they were diagrams. It would be easier to follow. But maps out the way the different component parts of, of a capital society buy and sell things in order to reproduce itself. Those have been influential in, to various bourgeois economists in developing models for you know, modeling the behavior of capitalist societies. But um, I really think it's important not to treat volume two in isolation and treat it just as some sort of 
abstract text on circulation. I really think that it's really only useful if we understand it within the context of his larger theory of capitalism. I have the Penguin edition of the book and the blurb on the back seems really to talk about volume two, about how it's linked to to Marx's theory of crisis, which I didn't get from reading the book very much at all. Like there are certain cases where he talks about it, but it's really more to me about the plumbing than about the leaks. (laughs) The plumbing rather than the leaks. I like that. Yeah, that's that's not bad. I mean, there are a lot of discussions of crisis that have happened historically that refer to things that happened at the end of volume two. Uh, a crisis is when capitalism is having problems reproducing itself. So uh, a crisis will manifest itself in the sphere of circulation, right? If capitalism is having problems reproducing itself, then there are going to be commodities that aren't sold or workers that can't find jobs or a means of production that aren't employed, like factories that rot or factories that go rusty. So the analysis in volume two might help us understand some of the ways that a crisis might appear in a capitalist society. Some people think that volume two is helpful for actually theorizing the causes of crisis. They say, you know, look at this complex picture Marx has drawn of all the complex interactions that are important for capitalism to reproduce itself. Someone like David Harvey would say, well, look, each of these points is a sort of a location where something could go wrong and this reproduction might not take place and then we might get a crisis. I actually think that's not the best way to read volume two. I don't think that's helpful. I think that volume two, this sort of map of, of reproduction is useful more as a, if, it, if it, in terms of crisis, is useful for seeing where crisis might manifest itself. So just to clarify on that, volume three, which I haven't read yet, but Marx gets into talking about how the rate of profit falls in the long run as a cause of crisis. But what I think you're saying is that volume two, when he looks in detail of how, say, commodity production actually works without looking at profit, really, is that you can see that in a case maybe where there is a crisis caused by perhaps falling profits, that you can see the points at which it'll express itself in the system. Yeah, I mean, like I said before, volume two abstracts away from any kind of problems that or even changes that might happen in production, right? We know that capitalism is continually revolutionizing production, and the values of commodities are constantly changing as that happens. And, and this is like the dynamic driving force of capitalism. So sometimes people are surprised that when they read volume two, there's no discussion of that sort of central dynamic at all in volume two. It's just about the circulation of this value. And we don't assume this sort of temporal process, of the value constantly changing. In fact, Marx gives us an equation at one point toward the end of volume two that shows society balancing itself. It shows the required exchanges between parties that allow for a balanced growth in capitalism. And some people have thought that Marx is trying to provide some theory of equilibrium there, which is, I don't I think, a total misreading. But uh, he's just dealing with a different set of abstractions at that point. He's purely dealing, dealing with the realm of circulation. And I think that what we can take away from that is that actually Marx is uh, showing us that there's no inherent crisis tendency just within the circulation process of capital itself. Then when we come to volume three, like you said, and he then starts to look at production again, 
and the way uh, changes in the value of means of production lead toward a falling rate of profit, then, then we start to get into an actual theory of crisis. We can take that and then look, at, look back at volume two and see the way those crisis tendencies might manifest themselves in circulation. But I don't think Marx is trying to give us like a circulation theory of crisis in volume two. No, but I, I do think he's probably saying something, though, like, because some of those formulas he gives for having an equilibrium capitalism, he does kind of say that, that these are quite stringent criteria that probably won't always be met and that they could cause some imbalances themselves. But it doesn't seem like it's the major thing. Yeah, and, you know, an imbalance here and there is not the same as like a global economic crisis. And, you know, c- capitalism has a certain momentum to it, right? I've used this analogy before, kind of like riding a bicycle, right? You know, a bicycle, to stay balanced, just has to have forward momentum for the most part. You're constantly adjusting in, on a bicycle, right? Your weight goes this way, your weight goes that way. It's, it's never really in, like, some sort of perfect equilibrium where it's staying still. But as long as there's a sort of forward momentum, it's moving forward. I think that's really what profit sort of analogous to the role profit makes in a capitalist society. There's all sorts of imbalances and bottlenecks in circulation and all sorts of problems. And sometimes, you know, sometimes they manifest themselves in, in larger ways, sometimes smaller, but they're not the same as like a full-scale crisis of the system like we had in 2007 or like we had in the 70s or, you know, the Great Depression. Those are, I really think, are different matters and can only be explained if something that goes wrong with the profit rate itself, because the profit rate is the basic sort of forward momentum that is coordinating things and dealing with all these smaller bottlenecks and and problems in circulation. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it, as in it's like the fuel of the system is the profit. Or like throwing a Frisbee, you know, the wobbles get bigger as it's running out of motion. Right, yeah, totally, totally, yeah. I have been kind of on and off looking at David Harvey lectures for the volume two. When I read volume two, the last couple of chapters on these reproduction schemas and trying to understand what has to occur for capitalism to reproduce itself, it's such a, a large part of the book. David Harvey seems to kind of nearly skip over it. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I missed uh, a, a lecture, but I got the impression that he hardly dealt with the schema for accumulation and expanding capital and not just reproduction. Huh. So I, I was quite surprised, and I think he would kind of give the impression that he found that Marx's solutions to some of the problems in these schemas that he kind of thought were kind of wrong. He has now a book about Volume 2. I saw it in the store the other day. I have not read it. He wrote about Volume 2 way back in 1980 when he wrote his book Limits to Capital, which I have read pretty closely. He does talk about the reproduction schemes, schemas there. I don't remember him criticizing them. You know, the reproduction scheme is also, the model for simple reproduction comes up in the transformation problem debate. So it could be that he was alluding to that. 
I think he was kind of saying that he thought the way the capitalist has to realize a surplus by spending his own money seemed like a problem. It doesn't take into account things like imperialism and money left over from feudalism and things like that. I think there is sometimes, honestly, like, I don't know, um, maybe I shouldn't say this in a recorded interview, but I do wonder if David Harvey is starting to lose his mind a little bit. Um, I just think the quality of his statements on certain things have just sort of become shy. Sometimes he says things, I just, I think, what? I feel, I mean, I feel like that kind of, that kind of argument is just sort of confusing levels of abstraction, levels of analysis. You know, Marx is abstracting away from so many things in volume two. And the, but there are reasons for that. Like, he's not just leaving things out for fun. He's assuming a single closed capitalist society with only two classes. Because he's, he's, trying, he's trying to answer certain theoretical questions. And if he was to just take away those abstractions and consider actually existing capitalist society, there'd be no way for him to actually address the theoretical questions he's trying to answer. Because the system itself is too complex for that type of analysis. Yeah, I mean, and this, and just a basic ceteris paribus condition, you know, uh, all other things being equal sort of condition. And this, this happens all the time in science. All sciences do this. They say, okay, we're going to hold other things constant and abstract them away so we can look at these basic interrelating parts. Marx here, he wants to look at the way that capitalism in its pure form reproduces itself. Of course, you know, in a real society, there's all sorts of external things. There's a world outside of capitalism in Marx's time, right? All sorts of undeveloped non-capitalist countries that trade with capitalist countries and all sorts of remnants of feudalism and all those things. But um, those have no relevance to the questions he's trying to answer in volume two. Maybe I could say just a couple other things about the, the reproduction schemes I think are important. I don't want to take credit for, you know, not, not, hardly anything I ever say is something that I figured out myself. So a lot of times when you read people talking about the reproduction schemes, um, they're painted as if Marx is developing like an abstract model of an economy, similar to modern sort of neoclassical modeling, sort of in the same spirit of like, so creating this sort of formalistic abstract model, like an equilibrium model, right? But actually, if you read the text itself, you'll see that in the table of contents, before Marx goes into his whole sort of surreal meditation on these, these the reproduction schemes, there is a long chapter called Former Presentations of the Subject, with a short bit on the physiocrats, and then a long 30-page section on Adam Smith. I think a lot of times in Marx, when you see these former presentations of the subject, there's a lot of that in the critique of political economy, where you get has these long subchapters about prior theories in the topic, or there's like you know the book Theories of Surplus Value, which is all about other people's theories. I think a lot of times when people see that, they sort of want to just speed through that and get to what Marx thinks. I mean, I know I myself was guilty of that. I first read Volume Two, I thought. All right, all right, Adam Smith said this, we know he's wrong, blah, blah, blah. Let's get to the actual, what Marx says the world is like, right? But after, the, after I'd read Volume 2 the first time, I came across a different take on Volume 2, and, which made me realize that actually the whole reproduction schemas are, the entire point of them is to refute an, an argument of Adam Smith's. Marx isn't developing these theories just for the sake of creating this abstract model of equilibrium. He's doing it 
to prove Adam Smith wrong about Adam Smith's contention that all the growth of capital is, is good for our workers all the time. And this reading was sort of made aware of it by a little bit in Raya Dunyavskaya's book, uh, Marxism and Freedom. Uh, Andrew Kleiman has worked a lot on, on this interpretation, and I've spoken to him in person about it, so you know, maybe he'll write something more detailed about it one day. But um, I think that's actually what's going on in the reproduction scheme, is, and I urge anyone who's reading the book for the first time or reading it again to actually pay attention to what it is that Adam Smith is, had said and what Marx is doing to try to counter that argument, because that's the actual reason that he goes into all these in the first place. So what was it that Adam Smith had said? He's arguing that it's actually very apropos to our society right now. Right now, everyone's very upset about inequality, right? Even good liberals are complaining about inequality. People only complain about inequality when they think it's bad for capitalism and when they think it's bad for workers, right? The reason everyone's pissed about inequality now is not because they actually think inequality by itself is wrong, but because they think inequality is what messed up the economy and led to the crisis. Now, I don't actually think that's the case. I don't think that's why the crisis, I don't think the crisis happened because of inequality. But regardless, when the economy is doing well, when capitalism is growing, people rarely complain about inequality. They say, okay, well, maybe there's some rich people, but, you know, I guess capitalism needs that incentive structure in order to have growth. And really, capitalism is all about providing for people, right? Adam Smith makes an argument somewhat like this, a little more sophisticated than what I just said, but he makes an argument where he's saying that, and as, as Andrew Kleiman has explained it to me, it's basically a trickle-down theory of economics. It's that, sure, there's some rich people, but the point of capitalist production is to provide goods for people and to give people jobs. So in the end, all this production resolves itself into wages paid to workers so they can buy the commodities they made. Even though there might be profit going to capitalists, that profit just hires more workers and creates more commodities for those workers. So in the end, it's a, it's a win-win for everybody. That's the Adam Smith argument. And Marx and his reproduction schemas counters that and argues that that's not the case. And this is not always clear to people, you know, because they come to volume two with this prior conception that we're just looking at these abstract models and they don't see that Marx is actually developing these models specifically because he doesn't like Adam Smith's argument. Some Marxists had some problems with these schemas, in particular Rosa Luxemburg, who's famous Marxist from about 100 years ago. What, what was her problem with them and what did she propose in their place? Actually, Luxembourg's position was similar to that critique that David Harvey made that you mentioned earlier. Luxembourg thinks that Marx has just delivered a model for the possible capitalist equilibrium, and she doesn't like that. Now, that's not the case. Like I said, the argument's purely designed to refute Adam Smith, and in volume three, he has a theory of crisis. But she doesn't read it this way. And Luxembourg, she can't critique the logic of Marx's argument that shows potential sort of, you know, balanced growth. And so instead, she critiques the abstractions of his model. She says, well, this isn't a realistic abstraction because it doesn't consider the periphery outside of capitalism and the, the interrelations between a capitalist society and the non-capitalized world, what we would now call the third world. Uh, and then she you know, develops this, her own theory of crisis, which is, is not Marx's theory. It's an under-consumptionist theory that argues that 
there's a constant inability of capitalism to create enough demand for its own product because workers are exploited. They don't have enough purchasing power to buy back all the goods they make. And so capitalism has to expand its markets and sell things to other places. To, and this creates geographically expansive capital. And that accounts for imperialism. You know, in Rosa Luxemburg's time, imperialism was a very hot issue. And uh, it was a very new issue, this sort of global imperialism. And so people were looking for ways to theorize that. So that's where she's coming from. Unfortunately, she's wrong. Capitalism does not have a chronic inherent underconsumption problem. Didn't you have someone on your show recently talking about underconsumption? Yeah, so I don't need to go into that stuff. He covered all that. Listen to that podcast if you haven't heard it. So it seems strange to me now, just when you mentioned that they're thinking about underconsumption, when you think about the schemas and how Marx showed that there could be stability in a capitalist society, it doesn't mention anything about what are the ratios of inequality or anything like this. It just shows that for a given economy, they can be stable. And it's a wonder that underconsumption as a theory comes out of maybe volume two, because regardless of what distribution you know the capitalists are getting or the workers are getting there's a solution to a stable system yeah i mean i think underconsumptionism doesn't really come out of volume two it just i think volume two sort of fell on deaf ears in the second international and underconsumptionism became sort of the dominant crisis theory of the second international and became sort of the orthodox marxist theory of crisis for a long time but actually there's like no way to legitimize the theory within the arguments in volume two. It would seem to be the opposite. It would seem to say the opposite. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, part, it's not unusual for 20th century Marxists to develop ideas that are very counter to Marx and then to present them as Marx's ideas. That's pretty par for the course in 20th century Marxism. Speaking of 20th century Marxism, who's Eric Byrne? Eric Byrne is not a Marxist. In fact, he has what appears to be a very bourgeois theory of personal interactions. But he wrote this classic book called Games People Play, and I referenced it recently in a talk I gave at the Left Forum, where I was using it as a way to explain some of the games people play with Marx. As Eric Byrne's, uh, have you read it actually, Tom? I haven't, no. You should get a copy online. I'll send you a PDF. It's funny because he basically... He breaks down all these typical interactions that people have, and he sort of treats them as games that they're playing against each other. It's often it's husbands and wives or you know, various personal interactions people have. And he sort of gives them these funny titles and talks about the sort of roles that people fall into over and over again playing these games with each other. So it's sort of it's kind of pop psychology in some ways, um, but it was, a hit, it was a hit book in the 60s. Anyway, he's got one of the games is called now I've got you, you son of a bitch. And now I've got you, you son of a bitch is a game played by often an irate man who really just wants to, any excuse to lambast and dig into to somebody. And so he holds people to ridiculous standards just for the sake of being able to chew them out and be nasty to them, right? So I took this game and I quotation of it called, Now I've got you, Marks, you son of a bitch. And in the paper, I talk about how it's very common for people to play this game, Now I've Got You, Marks, You Son of a Bitch. The game works basically like this. Someone takes an argument by Marx, and they 
put it into a framework where it would be impossible for the argument to ever be proven or even impossible for a logical, intelligent person to agree with the statement. So they sort of take Marx and throw him into some other paradigm or take the argument to make in something it's not trying to make. Uh, and then they triumphantly cry, now I've got you, Marx, you son of a bitch. And then this, having now won the game that they've made, this then gives them free license to do whatever they want with Marx. They can create their own reformulation of the theory and call themselves a, a Marxist with some brilliant you know, uh, uh, reinterpretation. They can trash Marx, kick him while he's down, and proclaim the eternal triumph of capitalism, uh, whatever. But we see this all the time in, in the Marx world. You know, Marx is dealing with a set, of, a set of questions that are not the same questions that modern economics tries to answer. So people often play, now I've got you, Marx, you son of a bitch, by just assuming that Marx is trying to answer the same questions that their Econ 101 book is trying to answer. Marx is coming from a, a rather complex and subtle dialectical method that he has taken from Hegel and totally made his own in this new radical way. And it, it, it develops categories and abstractions very differently than, than we do in everyday thinking and very differently than we do in very positivist-dominated social sciences. So people often take things Marx has done and try to put them into to the framework of a positivist social science. Explain what you mean by positive social, social science. Yeah, so positivism, uh, amongst other things, treats objects and phenomena as having meaning by themselves. The definition of a thing or an object is separate from the relations within, within which the objects are in. So then positivism would describe or explain a system of interactions by um, sort of describing the separate definitions of things and then observing the way they relate and then making observations about that. Marx thinks that the definitions of things are completely determined by their relationship to other things. And rather than just describing the interactions between these sort of separate things, he describes the objects themselves in their sort of system of relations they exist in. And then he shows that all those relations are necessary to the system. That all sounds like kind of abstract probably at that level, but but it sounds kind of like what um, a modern scientist would think of as complexity theory to kind of like understand all the components of the thing as a system as opposed to separate elements. It could be. I know nothing about that stuff, so I can't comment on that, but it could very well be. He, he would be an example. Actually, I was having a debate recently on my blog with some anonymous stranger who is raising arguments like this about Marx's theory of value. He's saying, why is it that you know, value is the only source of labor. Look, there are other things that affect prices. So why can Marx abstract away the effect of these other elements on price? Like this guy is upset about the fact that he thinks land creates value, but other people throw out other things too, right, that affect the uh, movement of prices. This comes from a very positivist perspective, where if we wanted to explain price, we would just I'll look at all the different things that contribute empirically to the formation of prices, create separate definitions of all of them, and then just sort of describe the fact that they all affect price, and then that we would call that a theory. 
for Marx, that is a completely inadequate way of doing theory because all we've done is describe the interactions of things. We haven't actually explained the necessary relations of the things and we haven't described why they necessarily result in this thing called value. So for Marx to do his theory, he has to go about a very different process. He has to identify which relations are sort of the universal, abstract elements of a system that define the essence of the system. Then he has to develop all the other categories, all the other things out of those universe, that universal element to show that they are necessarily part of that system. So it, it involves certain aspects of the system becoming subordinate to others and becoming um, sort of dominated by the logic of other parts of the system. So in a capitalist society, things are dominated by the commodity form, and the commodity form, the logic of the commodity form determines the, the way other things behave, and, and they become sort of uh, sucked into the logic of commodity production. So, for example, if we were to say, to try and explain what, is, what constitutes price, Say, say an empiricist might go out and look and say, well, some of prices is like rent and some of prices, this other part, maybe speculation, and then some of it is labor or something. But what Marx would have done instead of looked at, say, empirically, what would have given maybe some components of the of the price on, on different products, he would have looked more fundamentally to the underlying relations of how people work with each other and how they create objects and understanding value through that way and how maybe price is derivative of that. Yeah, he would say, what is price? Like, what, what is it? What is the essence of it? And exactly, as opposed to saying what percentage of price is this or that or the other. Right. What and what relations? Yeah. What relations give rise to this thing we call price? And so it's a whole different set of questions. So oftentimes people come to Marx, and the first thing they want to say, "Oh, labor theory of value." So it must be a theory of price. Oh, but look, it's so much more elegant to do this other theory of price, where we just say, "Oh, look, all sorts of things influence price." Now we have a theory, but for Marx, that's not. That's just completely different way of thinking, and completely different set of questions and method and goals than. The theory he's dealing with. It's a theory, but an inferior theory. Yeah, and it's like comparing apples and oranges. We, you can't really have a conversation about price theory and can just compare the two, like, you know, point for point like that. It just it's, it's, it's impossible to do. So a lot of these critiques of Marx, you know, this game of I got you now, Marx, you son of a bitch. A lot of these critiques come from within the academy itself. It's counterintuitive. You know, for, for one thing, Marx is so complex that it's very easy to read him in different ways. So in that sense, it's not hard to see why he can be interpreted a lot of, many different ways. It's also not hard to see that people in the academy who are, have been trained to think um, as positivists, as empiricists, as bourgeois social scientists, as bourgeois economists, would they read Marx and assume that he's trying to do the same things that the other things they read do. It's also not surprising that that when they have to deal with colleagues, have to write papers, have to apply for jobs, they have to do Marx in the same language as bourgeois theory in order to, you know, as a basic um, sort of element of their interaction as, as academics. That's actually not that surprising. I actually think it would be pretty hard to teach, you know, uh, Marx in the economics department of a university. That would be probably impossible. I mean, there's just no way of like fitting what Marx is doing into properly 
into it like an economics curriculum. You don't go from like doing Marshallian supply and demand graphs to reading the poverty philosophy and try to like make sense of them on the same paradigm. You know, in the states, you can't even like study the the history of economics philosophy or something like that, or the philosophy of economics. You can't even do those kind of studies. That is, the fields don't even exist. So, in that sense, it's not that surprising. Also, you know, Marx is complicated, and there is infinite amount of space for academics in certain sorts of departments to just sort of use Marx as a springboard for masturbation. Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, you, well, I, I think so. <laughs> There's so much crap out there masquerading as theory inspired by Marx. And it's just sort of, whether it's people doing literary Marxism or uh, postmodern Marxist cultural theory, so much stuff that just sort of this like endless, sort of uh, worthless, nonsensical riffing on things. It's just sort of people that like the sound of their own voice and people that need to write dissertations or need to publish papers in some sort of postmodern journals. And it's just sort of this infinite space for masturbation, but it's not really related to like developing theory for the purpose of revolution. You read some things about Marx, people write and you say, how do you even... Where you like you don't understand what someone's even coming from. They could read something that way, especially when you think that most of Marx's work, from what I can see, is really about economics. And a lot of people who consider themselves Marxists now, they really don't even discuss like the economic aspect or really sound like they understand it. Yeah, there's a real tradition of wanting to read Capital and ignore all the economic content, which blows my mind. <laughs> That's pretty hard to do. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I mean, I think Zizek would be someone like that. Sometimes Zizek can talk about Marx till the cows come home. And then when value theory comes up, he says, oh, well, of course, that's all bullshit. But I'm really a Marxist, you know, but then it's like, where, what else is there to talk about if you're not talking about value theory? Like, I, I don't even know what he reads of Marx that he can inform himself on about Marx that doesn't involve value theory. What you're referring to is what's called theory. And the reason when I said I'm not interested in theory, what I meant is I'm not interested in posturing using fancy terms like polysyllables and uh, pretending that theory when you have no theory whatsoever. So there's no theory in any of this stuff, not in the sense of theory that anyone's familiar with in the, the sciences or any other serious field. Try to find in all of the work you mentioned some principles from which you can deduce conclusions that yield empirically testable propositions uh, where it all goes beyond the level of uh, you know, something you can explain in five minutes to a 12-year-old. See if you can find that when the, when the fancy words are decoded. I can't, so I'm not interested in that kind of posturing. Zizek is an extreme example of it. Well, you say his work is becoming influential. I would question that. I think his posturing is becoming influential. Can you tell me what the work is? I can't find it. He's good. You know, he's a good actor. He makes things sound exciting. But can you find any content? I I can't. I would have no interest in having a conversation with him. And I suppose it's. Uh, 
converse is true as well, I imagine. But I don't see anything in what he's saying. Jacques Lacan actually knew. You know, I'm kind of like that. We have good meetings every once in a while, but I thought, personally, quite frankly, I thought it was a total charlatan. He just dropped directly for the television cameras and the way many powers intellectuals do. But why this is influential, I haven't the slightest idea. I don't see anything there that should be influential. So, yeah, I'm not interested in that kind of uh, theoretical posturing, which has no content. I have another question for you here. For me now, reading Capital, Volume 2 especially, there's quite a focus in his analysis on gold as as a currency, like a commodity-backed currency. Now, I know a lot of the political economists at the time would always have discussed gold and silver, but do you or how do you think a paper currency framework might have changed his analysis? I don't think it would change much of anything at all. Do you think it would put more emphasis for him on the role of the state into these models? I doubt it. I think that the reason that Marx deals, first of all, it's not true that Marx never talks about paper money or even non-convertible paper money. There's a rather detailed treatment of all those topics in his critique of political economy, which was published before Capital. I think the reason Marx talks about gold has to do with the, again, the sort of starting abstractions he's dealing with in volume one. In volume one, he, one of the first things he does is show how money itself evolves logically and historically out of the commodity form. So that money is a inherent part of commodity production. And the laws of money are the laws of commodity production. Uh, Money has some unique properties within commodity production, but those unique properties are due to, you know, they flow out of the laws of value, the laws of of commodity. They're not some other independent laws that are outside of, that are sort of separate from the way the commodity is considered. And Marx is doing this for several reasons, and some of those reasons have to do with the uh, intellectual opponents and predecessors that he's trying to deal with. Uh, He was very critical of Ricardo's theory of money. Ricardo, of course, talked about a labor theory of value and had uh, this theory of value that was influential in many ways on Marx. But Marx was appalled that when it came to money, uh, Ricardo dropped any sort of labor theory value and dealt with money in some other sense, as if money had these other intrinsic properties that were sort of independent of commodity relations. And Marx often critiqued Ricardo for claiming, saying Ricardo claims that, you know, Ricardo's theory of money ends up implying that uh, money commodities uh, enter the market without prices and the money gets its price in the market and the commodities then get their prices in the market. And Marx says any theory of intrinsic value has to argue the opposite, that money and commodities enter the market already with values and with ideal prices. So there's that critique. Marx is also critiquing Proudhon. And that's probably even more of the reason that I think the gold is important to Marx's analysis. Proudhon was a bourgeois anarchist socialist reformer who thought that the problems with capitalism were due to unequal exchange, that people were ripped off in exchange. And if we, if we could just have some way of making exchange equal, 
where people were never ripped off, and that things always sold for exactly their value, exactly for the labor time uh, that it took to make them, then we would rid ourselves of all these social ills like exploitation and crisis and all these other things, right? And so he has, Proudhon has this idea to get rid of money because Proudhon thinks that the problem is that money has this special privilege. And so Proudhon wants to legislate away money. He wants to have a, some sort of government that comes in and gets rid of money and replaces money with labor tokens, which are just sort of these symbols uh, of the amount of labor. You know, the token would be a one-hour token or two-hour token, and you would make a commodity, you would write on the commodity, this took two hours to make, and then you, know, you would spend a two-hour token on a two-hour commodity, etc. Well, Marx devotes hundreds and hundreds of pages of invective castigating Proudhon for this idea over the course of many books. By the time we get to Capital, the critique is still there, but it's embedded in the, te in the text and it's not explicit. But if we could make anything sort of sh a short version of his critique and how it relates to this question, it's that Marx is saying that money is an inherent part of commodity production and you can't just legislate it away with a state power. As long as you have private production and the exchange of the product of that production in the market, money will be a necessary part of that process. And part of the artifact of his argument is the fact that money itself is a commodity and develops the laws of its motion from the laws of motion of, of commodities. Now, that doesn't mean that money always has to be a commodity, because Marx, right away in the critique of political economy, talks about the evolution of the money commodity and how it slowly over time is replaced by tokens and replaced by, eventually by worthless pieces of paper. But he doesn't, that doesn't actually change the basic sort of analysis about the role money plays or the sort of laws of circulation that, and, and value that money perform in, in the society. They're modified slightly, but they're not significantly changed. Uh, I think a lot of times people get confused about the role of gold in Marx and sort of maybe associate him with Thinks he think he's trying to do other things with the theory or think that there's some sort of weakness in his theory of money because he's talking about gold all the time. But I, I don't think that's the case. People should listen to Doug's show on Alan Freeman. It's, it's the Diet Soap podcast. Doug Lane interviewed Alan Freeman several years ago. They talked about gold. It was a pretty good theory. I mean, a pretty good uh, uh, interview. I've read a bit of stuff like there's a post-Keynesian school on modern monetary theory. I don't know if you've heard of it. I know you're into that stuff, and I haven't really followed that school of thought. Yeah, even David Graeber's book on debt. I don't know if you've read that one, Debt, the First 5,000 Years. No, it's, um, I have not read it. I'd recommend it. The, the anthropological evidence looks like that debt came along before commodity money. So, like, say uh, me and you were, were neighbors. I've owned farm, you've got another farm, and you've got chicken farm, and I've got a, a sheep farm. And I want some chickens, but you don't want any sheep now. Basically, I'll say, oh, give me a few chickens, and then I'll give you some sheep when you need them, say, for example, or something else that I get that you need. So you'd be, the, the actual transaction wasn't done through, say, a, a commodity like gold or silver, because you know each other. The anthropological evidence would say that it's done through debts, whether formalized or informal, and that money came kind of secondary to the debt, where the ideas that are probably around in 
both Marx and bourgeois economics is kind of like the commodity money was the first original money and then came paper. But it, it seems to be like the anthropological evidence seems to be the other way around. Yeah, I mean, it's not clear to me how that would relate in any sort of critical way to Marx. You know, maybe this is a good sense we were talking about sort of methodology earlier. You know, there are all sorts of things in a capitalist society that are subordinate to the commodity, that are subordinate to commodity relations, but existed prior to commodity relations. Relations in the land, like, you know, rent, uh, usury, money, you know, all these things predate wage labor and capitalism in a society that's dominated by the production of commodities. So the historical appearance of these various elements doesn't account for their their internal relations within the capitalist society. Once commodity production comes along, it subordinates prior historical formations to its own logic so that relations of the land become rent, so that you know, usury becomes money capital, so that you know, merchant capital becomes subordinate to productive capital. So there's like uh, you know, a prehistory of capitalism that has maybe a certain historical ordering of different phenomena. But then there's the actual capitalism itself and the internal relations of the system that are a different thing. And this would be the same in a society after capitalism. It may contain elements of a capitalist society, but they're reordered and become subordinate to some sort of you know, socialist productive relation, perhaps. And that's just sort of a natural way that uh, societies evolve. They don't just create things, they don't create whole new societies from scratch, they evolve out of previous things and they adapt the things they inherit from prior social formations. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show today, Brandon. Yeah, thanks so much. And uh, great, great to talk to you, Sam. والله يا حروف الوطن زي العقد في الصدر محلاه On this episode, we heard theme tune The Order of Pharaonic Jesters by Sunra and his orchestra, and some school kids singing about frisbees in their English class. You also heard Noam Chomsky sticking the boot in Slavoj Zizek accompanied by Gypsy Jazz Sax playing Django Reinhardt's Minor Swing and in solidarity with those under attack in the Gaza Strip you are now listening to Mohammed Asaf singing the traditional Palestinian song The Kafea. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. واليا يهل المراجل لم الشمل محلا والنون والنون والنور النا
وقدسنا مسراه علي الكوفيه علي ودول بيها اني عتابه وميشانه وسامي